Is the Bible more than history? How does the life of the church show that the Bible is of enduring value? What's the similarity between reading the Bible and watching a soap? And how does the Bible help us when we feel we like we've been dealt a bad hand? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I will be talking to Walter Mobley. Walter is Professor of Theology at Durham University, and his research explores the responsible understanding and use of the Bible in the life, thought and spirituality of Christian faith today. And our question, why and how should we read the Bible today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Walter Mobley, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your role um, within the theology department here at Durham, and uh, the areas of uh, writing and research you found yourself doing over the years. Yeah, um, I've been in Durham a long time. I'm beginning my 35th year, would you believe? I'm the, the guy they couldn't get rid of, even though I came on a two-year temporary position um, originally. Um but I found this a very congenial context uh, to be in. Um, but with, I suppose, the particular challenge of what does it mean to do biblical and Christian theology that's faithfully and authentically Christian in a secular university in a way that is fully respectful of the parameters and concerns of the secular university. Um, and it's sort of holding those two together um, that is uh, sort of central to to my concerns. Um, my teaching, I, I teach four modules and over the years have sort of worked out that you know, I'm now teaching what I really want to teach. And most of my writing is in these areas. I mean, I, you know, the stuff that I I write and publish tends to be stuff that grows out of my teaching I sort of teach something live with it get a sense of I think I've got something here and then write it up (laughs) let's hone in on that that question that your academic focus has been on these 35 years which is um, the place of the bible not only within the the secular university but why people and Christians in particular should still read the bible as a way of understanding God and learning how to live What's the what are the sharp questions for you, and what interests you in why that's something to focus on? Um, well, there's a sense in which the Bible is the foundation of Christian faith. Um, people sometimes forget that, or at least give the impression that you know Christian faith can sort of manage on its own without really worrying about the Bible too much. Um, but that doesn't feel robust or having the prospect of any very long life, so to speak. Um, it's just and, one generation to the next, almost. Yeah. And you know, the, many of the famous moments of renewal in the history of the church have been when people have, in some sense, rediscovered Scripture. And one of the questions, though, well, It's how you can do something that's sort of fully academically rigorous and responsible, but also open to concerns of faith um, in a way that takes that seriously. Um, 
a kind of formative moment, certainly in retrospect, maybe at the time, um, I think was when I was uh, training for ordination. Um, and one evening I saw that there were two books on my desk side by side. And I didn't know how I got there side by side. Um, but one was the first volume of the new revised Shura, History of the Jewish People in the Age of Jesus Christ. And this represented, you know, sort of serious scholarly work, you know, ancient history, knowledge of the ancient world, and, you know, lots of footnotes and, you know, sort of rigorous stuff. But, and, you know, that's what I knew as a sort of, you know, scholarship. And next to it was Corrie Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, which represented something of the excitement, the joy, the challenge of Christian faith and life, and, you know, sort of represented the kind of reason why I was, you know, doing theology in the first place. But as I looked at those two books, I realised they were a kind of chalk and cheese. You know, the scholarly one really had nothing to say about questions of faith, and the one about the life of faith really had nothing to say about scholarship. And I realised that I was sort of invested in both and didn't want to be schizophrenic. So the question and the challenge became, how can I hold them together and in a way that might perhaps make sense for others as well, you know, the rigorous scholarship, but also um, questions of faith and life. And, and did you find many other people at the time who were doing that, or who were your... People? The short answer is no. Um, I used, when I was at Theological College, endlessly to complain and bleat to my wonderful and long-suffering principle that the stuff I was doing in my biblical studies was all very well but you know how does something on the date of Deuteronomy make any difference to what you've got to preach or do in a bible study or, or you know read devotionally um, and I was always assured oh yeah yeah it really is important and I kept saying but I can't see how it all hangs together um the first scholar who really helped me, I think, um, was the American Brevard Childs, um, who taught at Yale for many years, was very prolific. Um, it took me a long time to understand what Childs was really getting at. Um, but I felt from quite an early stage that, as it were, my problem was his problem too that my questions were in some way his questions and that, you know, he was doing something with them. So if I, you know, tried to tag along, I might, you know, <laughs> uh, pick something up, so to speak. Um, and Childs was a, a major formative influence um, on my work. Um, and I think probably the other, at least biblical scholar, who's been most influential um, is John Levinson, the professor of Jewish studies at Harvard, who is wanting to do in a Jewish frame of reference the sort of thing that I'm trying to do in a Christian frame of reference. Um, and, uh, and he's actually, a, I think, a better writer than Childs. And uh, so I got an awful lot from, from Levinson as well as from Childs. I mean, I've learned from others, particularly theologians as such, you know, who aren't particularly interested in scripture. People like Nicholas Lash, Rowan Williams have had a huge influence on me. But, you know, for starting to think what one might do with scripture, Childs and Levinson were the people who 
I think more than any other helped me though you know I, I could give you a very long list of others who have also helped but you know they're they're the headline figures and the place that's taken you most recently is in a book that you've published wonderfully titled the bible in a disenchanted age and you explore in that book which um I much enjoyed why the bible should still be read seriously as scripture just just remind us there are different ways that other people treat the bible just mm. just remind us what they are thank you yeah well i i i try to take seriously the fact again in a secular university um that people aren't necessarily interested in biblical interpretation for reasons of faith um and the most obvious forms that interest takes when it isn't to do with faith is uh, first just ancient history you know uh, the biblical documents are there as something that have survived from the ancient world which you can be interested in like you can be interested in what remains from greece rome egypt you know and when you actually get into it it is interesting, you know, there was a lot going on in the ancient world that you know, <laughs> uh, repays attention. Um, now, of course, you can do that also from a faith perspective, of course, but many don't want the faith perspective, the assumption that it's of enduring significance, just simply, you know, they want to know how things were in the ancient world. They just find it interesting. And so I want to affirm, yeah, yeah, you can do that. Um and I think the other main area of interest in the Bible is uh, as a kind of cultural classic um, where you recognise that the Bible has had a huge impact on Western culture and civilization until fairly recently. I mean, it's less obvious now, but you know, a massive impact on the, the, the literature, the, the art, the architecture, the music, you know, you name it. Um, and uh, so a lot of scholars are interested now in reception history, which is really, you know, how did the Bible impact in various ways? Um, and again, you don't have to be interested in questions of God or faith to do that. Um, and there are a few um, who are also interested in the Bible as what you might call a, a sort of a classic of the human condition. This tends to be writers, um, novelists, novelists, yeah. yeah, in particular, who don't want to ask the question of God as such or faith as such, but they see something sort of searching and deep in the Bible, uh, which they want to take very seriously. I mean, John Steinbeck's East of Eden, I endlessly commend to my students as uh the best sort of reflection on the story of Cain and Abel that I've ever come across. Um, and, and, you know, Steinbeck isn't interested in the question of God, but the issues of the biblical text he sees in a deep way and works with wonderfully. There's a psychological richness to be yeah. at play, among other things, that is at play in the biblical text that, yeah. that, that, that continue to speak yeah. to the human condition today. Yeah, exactly. Now, all those are ways in which I want to acknowledge, you know, people can take the Bible seriously. I mean, obviously, don't take it seriously at all. But, you know, you can take it seriously for reasons which don't have anything basically to do with faith today. You know, how might this, how might God speak in and through this? How might I 
grow in faith, hope and love. You know, you can do all those things without asking those questions. Um, but of course, having affirmed that, I won't say, but you know, it's the faith, hope and love, however one puts it, um, that, you know, for me, that's the reason I'm bothering. And I want to try and show how that can be done in relation to um, all these other things. And the way you do that is you make an interesting contrast with another classical text, which I think is Virgil's Aeneid. And you, you begin to sort of explore why we might take the Bible more seriously or what the, the difference that we might take in terms of our approaching, for example, Virgil's Aeneid. What, what, are, your, what are your reasons for that? Yeah, um, it, 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 it was one of those things that just struck me one day that... I don't know how to put it. I mean, we've often assumed that, you know, we just, people in the West have assumed that the Bible is special somehow, uh, and it's more than a, just a classic, whereas the Aeneid is a classic. Um, but then, you know, what's the difference between a classic, a work of enduring significance, you know, whether it's Aeneid or Shakespeare or whatever, um, and scripture that is sort of not less than a classic, uh, but sort of more um and in what way more and why should you treat it as sort of more than than a classic um and i mean my answer in the book is is, is a rather sort of uh well i don't want to say long-winded but it takes a long time to come out in sort of stages steps of the argument so to articulated speak. oh thank you yes sir. <laughs> much better than long-winded um <laughs> um but one of the reasons is the role of the Bible in the life of communities of faith, Christian and Jewish in a different way, unbrokenly for you know, the last 2,000 years or so. Um, because I think one, one of the things I argue is that one of the reasons for approaching the Bible with, as it were, special expectations that the God of whom it speaks is God, capital G, you know, the one God, is because there's been an unbroken history of people reading it, thinking that way, making that assumption, and finding it life-giving. Um, we don't, as it were, you know, work it out for ourselves. Well, I just found these really interesting things called the Bible. I wonder if, you know, the God it speaks of might be the truth. I mean, it doesn't work like that. You know, we enter into uh, a living tradition which creates expectations and assumptions. Now, of course, we've got to make them our own and, you know, test, you know, is it really so um, in all sorts of ways but taking seriously the un, an unbroken history of christian thought and practice seems to me important it's it's sounding a dimension that isn't often always there in sort of doctrines of scripture and its authority and it's also in conjunction with some other things i say in the book i suppose it's a way of trying to re to get away from and reframe questions about the relationship between bible and church because there's been a sort of a hangover from the 16th century of saying well you know is the bible over the church or is the church over the bible so to speak um and i'll say that's not a good way of putting it you know uh, the bible and the church in a sense 
run alongside each other, which isn't to say that, you know, the Bible isn't in some way, you know, a, a definitive authoritative word. But without the life of the church, uh, it's never going to be what it should be, so to speak. So it's an attempt to sort of rethink that relationship in, in ways that are actually truer to what goes on on the ground. Um, one of the things that has struck me is, you know, often those who appeal most strongly to, you know, it's the authority of scripture, you know, what moves people to accept that is that they trust the people who say it. You know, they come to like them, trust them and think, well, OK, if you tell me that, then I trust you. And so I come to trust it, the book. Um, but it, it works via the people you're willing to trust and go along with. So I'm just trying to sort of get that clearer and more explicit, I think, what, as I say, happens anyway. And therefore, it seems to me you're describing it's the Bible within the life of the church or within the mm. life of God's people that that potentially um, elevates or at least creates the potential for this to be a, a special, even dare one say, a unique text. Mm. Yeah. Because it's the, and it's the, the, the relationship between the Bible and the people who live by it yep. and who are inspired by it and who do a number of remarkable things as a result of the message mm -hmm. that somehow adds an added dimension to the Bible that, that sets it apart from simply being a text. Yeah, exactly. It's the living community, which in a sense, you know, a class, most classics don't have, or, you know, arguably the Aeneid had it originally in the life of ancient Rome. You know, for people it was sort of a central articulation of Roman identity. Um, but that's gone long since. Um, and, you know, if the church fails, then I think expectations about the Bible will fail as well. Mm. And here's a kind of scary thought, you know, that puts a lot of weight on Christian witness and life. Mm. How does that help um, with the kind of thorny questions that go around around the truthfulness of the Bible and, you know, can we rely on it and... Is it is it is what it said in there? What really happened? Those sorts of, and I know those are scholarly questions as well mm. as faith questions. Does yeah. this perspective that you bring help us kind of through that little web at all? Well, I, I hope so because I'm 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 trying to articulate something of you know, what's necessary to trust. Um, and. Uh, I have, I think, two paragraphs towards the end on inerrancy, which is not a category on the whole I want to discuss. But the, all the inerrancy debates seem to me to frame things in the wrong kind of way. Because, I mean, partly because a person you trust might occasionally get things wrong. You know, they might misremember a, a date or give you the wrong time for something. And that doesn't make mean that they're not trustworthy. I mean, trustworthiness is a judgment about character. Um, and so the trustworthiness of scripture is a judgment about the nature of the thing. Can I, can I trust this? Um, and I, I suggested uh, that instead of asking questions about errors sometimes asked, the question would really be deception. Are these writers out to deceive you? Do you have any reason for supposing that? Because in that case, you really oughtn't to trust them. Um, but if there is no reason to suppose that they're out to deceive, um, but they're actually, you know, they are writing for concerns to promote that which is 
good and right under God, then uh, that becomes the important thing to attend to. And then, you know, there are further questions then of literary genre and so on. I mean, I signed some notes at the beginning of the book suggesting again that some, I mean, it's not that there ain't a lot of history in the Bible, but it's put in in a way that isn't that of the modern historian. I mean, every, all the biblical history is dramatised. Um, you know, there's conversations that where one doesn't imagine people in the ancient world running around with notebooks, you know, all the time. Um, or I give the example of Jesus um, in Gethsemane in Luke's Gospel, where you know he's praying and you know in the agony the great drops of sweat come out on his brow. And make the point, you can only see that if you're a few feet away from him. You know, this is the Luke is giving us the literary equivalent of a zoom lens right up close so we can see the agony of Jesus. But according to the narrative, you know, the disciples are a bit further away and, and busy falling asleep. Um, now, to recognize that doesn't mean that therefore, well, Luke's made it up and Jesus didn't really play in Gethsemane. I mean, that doesn't follow at all. But we need to recognize some of the literary conventions that are being used to pull, to convey and interpret what goes on. Um, and they're resistant to a certain kind of, well, did it happen like that or didn't it? If that isn't sensitized in some way to the modes of literary expression in the ancient world, which were, you know, a bit like today. I mean, it seems to me in our culture, we're very happy with lots of different modes of expression on the page, on the big screen, on the little screen. And, you know, sometimes we take a little while just to get in gear, but you know, we're familiar with the conventions and we, we don't blink. But then with the Bible, we say, oh, oh, there can't be a literary convention. It must have either happened or not. I say, well, no, 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 no. Maybe there are literary conventions in the ancient world as well. Um, and therefore part of the job of the scholar is to try and trace out what those look to be so that we can, you know, read it in a way that does justice to the material and doesn't sort of force it into a sort of procrustean bed of, you know, chop a bit off or stretch a bit or whatever to make it fit what we want it to fit rather than saying, I don't know, what is it yeah. in itself? Yeah. You suggest that part of what privileges the bible is the way in which it has been consistently or an enduring basis lived out within the life of a people hmm. the church and the way it has been seen by those people as trustworthy and has had an impact on their lives hmm. and and i can think of within my own ministry of the way in which god the bible has had an impact on where people have gone in the world hmm or what they've done with their lives, and they have clearly regarded that as trustworthy. As, yeah. But you've also suggested there's a sort of understanding required of some of the sensitivities of Scripture. What is it that stops it? What is it that stops people having to have a theology degree in order to find the Bible trustworthy? And perhaps not seeing all the sensitivities mm. that y you've outlined. Yeah. Now. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not into, you know, sort of the priesthood or papacy of the scholar, but uh, the church needs good scholars because otherwise ordinary believers are more likely to make a mess of things. Um, that, or, well, let me, let me put it differently. It seems to me when someone comes to faith, 
they are given what the ancients called a rule of faith. Um, People aren't told, well, there's the Bible, make of it what you will. You're given some kind of rule of faith. These are the things that matter. These are some of the priorities you should have in reading so that you know, believers generally are given a general sort of steer sort of by the life of the church or, you know, the particular preacher or or whoever. Um, And that seems to me, you know, absolutely right and proper and necessary. Um, But, you know, there are times when Christians can get it badly wrong. I mean, I don't want to slag off my friends and colleagues in the States, but I mean... In the US, the phenomenon of dispensationalism is quite bizarre, where you have a lot of faithful Christians, you know, sort of earnestly awaiting a rapture with a sort of a timetable for when the rapture occurs, which will then mean that certain unfulfilled Old Testament prophecies will begin to be literally fulfilled in our day and age. And there's a lot of Christians who go for that. And I think, oh, no, that's actually a quite a serious misreading of the text. Um, because the guidelines they've been given, the rule of faith, is a really bad one uh, in at least certain <laughs> respects. Um, but I suppose the, I mean, the other thing I, I, you know, I don't want everybody to have a theology degree, though the church must have people with theology degrees, though, is that I I always want to encourage folk when they read scripture to do it with so with full imaginative seriousness. Um, because we can easily take scriptures, oh well, well we know that, and it's you know it's just gonna say something familiar and you know, maybe even sort of trite, a bit moral, you know, sort of be nice and keep your nose clean and you know, turn up to church and give some money or you know, as though that's what it's really all about. Um, and I mean, I, I sometimes put it sort of crudely and provocatively, you know, please take the Bible at least as seriously as you take your favourite soaps, because it seems to me people get into soaps and they think through life in the world via the outworking in soaps. And if someone said, look, these are actors with a script and uh, they're being paid for it. So it, it isn't all really happening. People say, well, that's a bit odd. You know, don't, don't you get the point of, you know, how these things work? Um, but it seems to me often we're very bad at getting into the world of Scripture with, I say, the same imaginative seriousness as a soap or, a, you know, a novel or a, or a movie. And so it just becomes rather flat and predictable instead of something which, if you can allow your imagination to run around in it you may think hey this is a lot more interesting and unsettling and wonderful than i initially supposed Will you give me the example of something where full imaginative seriousness takes us to that place whether it's unsettling or wonderful then perhaps you know the initial skim read might suggest um a possibly slightly controversial example for a particular reason um the story of cain and abel um is usually read by christians uh with the question in mind you know what did cain do wrong 
that the Lord preferred Abel. Well, he must have done something wrong. And that usually comes out as um, Cain gave God second best. And therefore, the, the point of the story is don't give God your second best. Now, that's a very good point. I don't have any argument with that. And the New Testament certainly reads the story in terms of Cain having done something wrong or Abel did something better. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. And, you know, that's clearly a a, a significant reading of the text. But one of the things that has become increasingly clear to me, I think I was originally put onto it by John Levinson. I can't exactly remember, but, you know, I think he was the one who gave me the the prod, was... What if you don't rationalise the Lord's preference for Cain over Abel and say, well, there must be a reason why he, fa- he accepted one sacrifice but not the other. What if, humanly speaking, there is no reason? Because then it becomes a story about the fact that in life some are, as it were, favoured. They get dealt a good hand and others are unfavoured. They get dealt a bad hand, so to speak. Um, and what if the story is about how you handle when you're given a bad hand? Um, when, as it were, you're not obviously favoured by God or, you know, in certain respects. Um, and for my money, it becomes a much more searching story that way because... You know, some of the most important things in life are distributed unfairly. You know, what we get from the womb in terms of our intelligence, our appearance, varies enormously. We have no say over it. Many of the things that matter most in life, uh, what happened to us, you know, health, good health or bad health, um, you know, being ripped off by people or just living in a place and time where things are very difficult. You know, all these are, I think, facets and I can... And I would argue, you you can make the case exegetically for this, that this is what the story is wanting to probe, as it were. Um, But then you see it's it's much more unsettling if you recognise that there are things in the world that you can't explain, justify or rationalise in terms of, well, you know, God clearly intends this or there's a clear reason for it, where you can say, no, this makes no sense. Tragedies happen, disasters happen, we sometimes find ourselves in a terrible place. There is, human speaking, no good reason, and God doesn't give us a reason. The question then is, what do you do about it? Can you yet hope, can you yet find a way ahead in something that is unwelcome and unchosen, and yet not therefore impossible to do something with? Thank you. That's really helpful. So what might you say to somebody listening to this podcast who is looking to engage with the Bible with full imaginative seriousness? What might they be attentive to in their own reading or uh, what discipline might they want to practice? This may not be what you're getting at, but I always want to come back to Jesus as the key to Scripture. He is at the heart of it. And it is his death and resurrection that is at the heart of it. Um, And one of the striking things about the passion narrative 
is that it's underexplained, underinterpreted in the Gospels. I mean, it's not that there's nothing. I mean, particularly in the upper room, this is my body and this is my blood given for you. I mean, we are given some, you know, steer on what's going on and Son of Man giving his life a ransom for many. But apart from that, there's actually very little. Um, and instead of saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, sin's the problem and this is the answer, to say, if God incarnate, living faithfully, has to go into the darkness and trust his father, and, you know, the Gospels have a different sort of take on that. I mean, in Luke, it's, you know, Father, forgive them, it seems straightforward. In Matthew and Mark, it's, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the dynamics are different and very painful. What is going on there is something that is much more searching than we often recognise. We too often, as I say, sort of think, well, you know, sin's the problem and the, the death and resurrection of Christ is the solution, rather than seeing it as the key to thinking about life and how we might live it as a whole in ways that we may not entirely understand, but which nonetheless may be faithful to God's deeper purposes of which sometimes we get, you know, some sense of what, how it might make all make sense, and other times we don't. Thank you for for that very clear and helpful steer. Can I ask a, a final question about your own experience of the Bible? You've been engaged with this, as you said, for thirty five years in scholarship. How have you experienced the Bible to use that word as trustworthy, and how has that? shaped your own journey of faith if i could Mm, thank you yeah i I mean it's actually quite hard to answer in a sense you know because you know no one ever write my biography because you know i'm a scholar who goes and sits in his office and you know reads books and (laughs) writes things it's not actually very exciting on, on on one level but um i mean the difference that scripture makes is it i hope in as it were sort of framing and molding the kind of person i am and the kind of way I think about the world, what I regard as important or unimportant, um, uh, learning I hope to become, you know, a little less impatient and wanting things now, because mm, you don't have to spend much time with scriptures to see that that ain't how it works. Um, (laughs) And, I mean, perhaps one particular form, I mean, at least... For the scholar, I mean, if we've got to love God and love our neighbour, what does it mean to love your neighbour in a scholarly context? Scholars aren't very good always at doing that. Um, We're often very keen on point scoring, you know, I'm better than you are, I'm whatever. Um, We're often very slow to really listen to what other people are saying. I mean, it's dismaying that scholars who claim to read documents written two or 3,000 years ago claim to do so with insight, and yet they can't read something from a contemporary writing in the same field and discipline accurately and carefully. Um, the, the ease with which scholars misrepresent each other is dismaying. Um, and at least one sort of discipline of loving your neighbour is listening to your neighbour, doing justice to your neighbour, you know, which doesn't mean you can't disagree, but uh, it needs to be done well rather than the, you know, sort of slagging off point scoring or whatever um, that 
so often happens. That's a great way in which to show the Bible has ongoing relevance well, in, this, in this world today, <laughs> in your life and in ours. Walter Mobley, thank you very much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>